I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read... Uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Thankless employment. Uh, Over the last year and a half, I've been working at a place, uh, in a department, where the people were incredibly crabby. Uh, the company I worked at got bought out by a larger one and we got moved into this other team and, uh, me and one other coworker and they were mean to each other, not just to us. It was like wolves feeding on each other. They would insult each other. They would use words like idiot and stuff when talking to each other and also the supervisor. Um, one time, uh, a coworker was so outraged on a conference call that we were all on. And we're on the conference call even though we all sat next to each other, like in a giant cube, like a big pit, where you could all just turn and talk to each other face to face. But they still do conference calls. It was so weird. So one gets so outraged that he uh, hung up on the call. No one's listening to me anyways, and hung up and just sat there, not even 10 feet away from the other people around him. (laughs) <laughs> which was completely insane to me. So my coworker that came over to this group with me from my old company, uh, he moved on to a new position and got the heck out of there because they just, they're all angry at each other and they, they'll find reasons to yell at you. And, and I wasn't lucky enough to do that. And I wasn't really in the mood to go look for a brand new job somewhere else. So I kind of just stuck it out over a year and a half uh, and tried not to become one of them just to survive. And uh, didn't make a difference. It was horrible all the way through, uh, all the way down to the last day. Uh, I had to go in to the office where they all have new, new desks now. No one's working from home anymore. And I had to spend a half hour sitting there doing stuff before I had my yearly review with my supervisor. And uh, nobody, they all knew I was leaving. They knew that I was only two days away, but nobody said, hey, nice working with you. Nothing like that. Just dead silent, quiet the whole time. And so I had my yearly review. It was all thumbs up. Nothing bad. Nice work, Glenn. Uh, And that was good. Went back to get my stuff. Nobody said a single word to me, and I walked out of there. And that was pretty much fitting. Uh, I wish them all the best of luck. Uh, I think they're probably just going to keep being the way they're being for eternity. Which is probably the way I like to think of it. From here, long after my own death, they will still be there arguing at each other for the smallest reasons, throwing tantrums, calling each other names. Uh, And something about that being permanent in a world of impermanence, I find comforting. Well, anyways, uh, let's get on chapter five. Chapter 5. The Whirlwind Campaign in Mariposa. It was uh, Mullins, the banker, 
who told Mariposa all about the plan of a whirlwind campaign and explained how it was to be done. He'd happened to be in one of the big cities when they were raising money by a whirlwind campaign for one of the yeah, universities, and he saw it all. He said he would never forget the scene on that last day of it when the announcement was made that the total of the money raised was even more than that was needed. It was a splendid sight. Ooh, the businessmen of the town all cheering and laughing and shaking hands. And the professors uh, with tears streaming down their faces. And the deans of the faculties who had given money themselves sobbing aloud. He said it was the most moving thing he'd ever saw. So, as I said, Henry Mullins, who had seen it, explained to the others how it was done. He said that, uh, first of all, a few of the businessmen got together quietly, ooh, very quietly indeed, more quietly the better, and talked things over. Perhaps one of them would dine uh, just quietly with another, and one would discuss the situation. Then these two would invite a third man, uh, possibly even a fourth, uh, to have lunch with them and talk in a general way, even talk to other things uh, part of the time, and... So on, this way things would be discussed and looked at in different lights and viewed from different angles. And then when everything was ready, they would go at things with a rush. A central committee would be formed and subcommittees with captains of each group and recorders and secretaries. And on a stated day, the whirlwind campaign would begin. Each day, the crowd would all agree to meet at some stated place and eat lunch together. Uh, say at a restaurant or at a club or some eating place, they would go on every day with the interest getting keener and keener and everybody getting more and more excited till presently the chairman would announce that the campaign had succeeded and there would be the kind of scene that the Mullins had described. So that was the plan uh, that they set in motion in Mariposa. I don't wish to say too much about the whirlwind campaign itself. I don't mean to say that it was a failure. On the contrary. In many ways, it couldn't have been a greater success. And yet, uh, somehow, it didn't seem to work out just as Henry Mullen said it would. It uh, may be that there are differences between Mariposa and the larger cities uh, that one doesn't appreciate at first sight. Perhaps it would have uh, been better to try some other plan. Yet, they followed along the usual line of things closely enough. They began with the regular system of some of the businessmen getting together in a quiet way. First of all, for example... Henry Mullins came over quietly to Duff's rooms over the commercial bank with a bottle of rye whiskey, and they talked things over. And the night after that, George Duff came over quietly to Mullins' rooms over the exchange bank with a bottle of scotch whiskey. A few evenings after that, Mullins and Duff went together in a very unostentatious way with perhaps a couple of bottles of rye to Pete Glover's room over the hardware store, and then all three of them went up one night with Ed Moore, eh, the photographer, to judge Pepperleigh's house under pretense of having a game of poker. The very day after that, Mullins and Duff and Ed Moore and Pete Glover and the judge got Will Harrison, the business maker, to go out without any uh, formality on the lake of the pretext of fishing. And the next night after that, Duff and Mullins and Edmore and Pete Glover and Pepperleigh and Will Harrison got Alf Trelawney, uh, the postmaster, to come over, just in a uh, casual way, to the Mariposa house. After the night mail, and the next day, Mullins and Duff and uh, Papa Shah. You see at once how things had worked. There's no need to follow that part of the whirlwind campaign further, but it just shows the power of organization. 
And all this time, eh, mind you, they were talking things over and looking at things first in one light and then another light. In fact, just doing as the big city men do when there's an important thing like this underway. So after things had been got pretty well in shape in this way, Duff asked Mullins one night, straight out, if he would be a chairman of the Central Committee. He sprung it on him. Oh, and Mullins had no time to refuse, but he had put to Duff straight whether he would be a treasurer. And Duff had no time to refuse. That gave uh, things a start. And within a week, yeah, they had the whole organization on foot. There was the Grand Central Committee and six groups or subcommittees of 20 men each and a captain uh, for every group. Yeah, they had it all arranged on the lines most likely to be affected. In one group, there were all the bankers, Mullins and Duff and Pupkin with the same camel pin, and about four others, and they had their photographs taken at Edmore's studio, taken in a line with a background of icebergs, a winter scene, and a pretty penetrating crowd they looked. I can tell you, after all, you know, if you get a crowd of representative bank men together in any financial deal, you've got a pretty considerable leverage right away. In the second group, yeah, there were lawyers, Nivens, McCartney, and the rest. About as level-headed as a lot as you can see anywhere. Get the lawyers of a town with you on a, on a thing like this, and you'll find you've got the sort of brain power with them that you'd never get without them. Then there were the businessmen. There was a solid crowd for you. Harrison, the harness maker, and Glover, the hardware man. And all that gang. Not talkers, perhaps, but solid men. Who uh, can tell you to a nicety how many cents there are in a dollar. It's all right to talk about education and that sort of thing, but if you want driving power and efficiency, get businessmen. They're seeing it every day in the city. And it's just the same in Mariposa. Why, in the big concerns of the city, if they found out a man was educated, they wouldn't have him. They wouldn't keep him there a minute. That's why the businessmen have to conceal it so much. Then... In the other teams, there were the doctors and the newspaper men and the professional men like the Judge Pepperley and Yodel, uh, the auctioneer. It was all organized so that every team had its headquarters, two of them in each of these three hotels, one upstairs, one down. And it was arranged that there would be a big lunch every day uh, to be held in Smith's Calf, round the corner of Smith's Northern Health Resort and home of the Wissanati Angler. You know the place. The lunch was divvied up on the tables, uh, with a captain for each table to see about things to drink. And, of course, all the tables were in competition with one another. In fact, the competition was the very life of the whole thing. It's just wonderful uh, how these things run when they're organized. Take the first luncheon, for example. There they all were, every man in his place, every captain at his post at the top of the table. It was hard, perhaps, for some of them to get there. They had very likely to be in their stores and banks and offices till the last minute, and they make a dash for it. It was the cleanest piece of teamwork you ever saw. You've noticed already, I'm sure, that a good many of the captains and committee men didn't belong to the Church of England church. Glover, for instance, was a Presbyterian. Till he ran the picket fence of these men, he used to two feet of his property, and after that he became a free thinker. But in Mariposa, as I have said, everybody likes to be in everything, and naturally a whirlwind campaign was a novelty. Anyway, it would have been a poor business to keep a man out of the lunches merely on the account of his religion. I trust that the day for that kind of religious bigotry is past. Of course, yeah, the excitement was when Henry Mullins, at the head of the table, began reading out the telegrams and letters and messages. 
First of all, there was a telegram of good wishes from the Anglican Lord Bishop of the Diocese to Henry Mullins and calling him Dear Brother in Grace. The Mariposa Telegraph Office is a little unreliable, and it read, eh, Dear Brother in Greece. Eh, but that's good enough. The bishop said his most earnest wishes were with them. Then Mullins read a letter from the mayor of Mariposa, Pete Glover, was the mayor that year, stating that his keenest desires were with them. And then one from the carriage company saying that it's heartiest good. Will was all theirs. And, and then one of the meat works saying that it was the nearest thoughts were next to them. And he read one from himself as head of the exchange bank, you understand, informing him that the head of this project and assuring him of his liveliest interest in what he proposed. At each of these telegrams and messages, there was a round after round of applause so that you could hardly hear yourself speak or give an order. But that was nothing to when Mullins got up again and beat on the table for silence and made one of those crackling speeches. Yeah, just the way businessmen speak. The kind of speech that a college man simply can't make. I wish I could repeat it all. I remember that it began, Now, boys, you know what we're here for, gentlemen. And it went on just as good as all that. And then Mullins, who had done, he took out a fountain pen and wrote out a check for $100, conditional on the fund reaching 50000 And there was a burst of cheers all over the room. Just the moment he had done it, up sprang George Duff. Hey, you know the king competition there is. is a straight matter of business between the banks and Mariposa. Up sprang George Duff, I say, and wrote out a check for another 100 conditional on the fund reaching 70000 You never heard such cheering in your life. And then when Natalie walked up ahead of the table and laid down a check for $100 conditional on the fund reaching 100000 the room was in an uproar. $100,000. Just think of it. The figures fairly stagger one. To think of $100,000 raised in five minutes in a little place like Mariposa. And even that was nothing. In less than no time, there was such a crowd around Mullins trying to borrow his pen all at once that his waistcoat was all stained with ink. Finally, when they got order at last, and Mullins stood up and announced that the conditional fund had reached a quarter of a million. The whole place was perfect babel of cheering. Oh, these whirlwind campaigns are wonderful things. I can tell you the committee felt pretty proud that day. There was Henry Mullins looking a little bit flushed and excited with his white waistcoat and an American beauty rose with ink marks all over him from the check signing. And he kept telling them that he'd known all along that all that was needed was to get the thing started and telling again about what he'd seen at the university campaign about the professors crying and wondering if the high school teachers would come down for the last day of the meetings. Looking back on Mariposa Whirlwind, I can never feel that it was a failure. After all, there is a sympathy and a brotherhood in these things, and men work shoulder to shoulder. If you had seen the canvassers of the committee going round the town that evening, shoulder to shoulder, from the Mariposa House to the Continental, and up to the Mullins Rooms, and over to the Duff, shoulder to shoulder, you would have understood it. I don't say that every lunch... It was quite such a success as the first. It's not always easy to get out of the store if you're a busy man, and a good many of the whirlwind committee found that they just had time to hurry down and snatch their lunch and get back again. Still they came uh, and snatched it. As long as the lunches lasted, they came. Even if they had simply to rush it and grab something to eat and drink without time to talk to anyone, they came. Now, 
No, it's not the lack of enthusiasm that killed the whirlwind campaign in Mariposa. Must have been something else. I just don't know what it was, but I think it had something to do with the financial, the bookkeeping side of the thing. It may have been, too, that the organization was not quite correctly planned. You see, if practically everybody is on the committees, it is awfully hard to try and find men to canvas. And it is not allowable for the captains and the committee men to canvas one another because their gifts are spontaneous. So the only thing that the different groups could do was to wait around in some eh, likely place, say the bar parlor of Smith's Hotel, in the hope that somebody might come in who could be canvassed. Yeah, you might ask, yeah, why didn't they canvass Mr. Smith himself? But of course... They had done that at the very start. As I should have said, Mr. Smith had given them $200 in cash conditional on the lunches being held in the calf of his hotel. And it's awfully hard to get a proper lunch, I mean the kind of which the bishop can express regret at not being there, under a dollar twenty-five. So Mr. Smith uh, got back his own money, and the crowd began eating into the benefactions. And it got more and more complicated, whether to hold another lunch in the hope of breaking even or to stop the campaign. It was disappointing, yes, and in spite of all the success and the sympathy, it was disappointing. I don't say it didn't do good. No doubt a lot of the men got to know one another better than they ever had before. I myself heard Judge Pepperley say that after the campaign, he knew all the Peak Glover had that wanted to, and that there was a lot of that kind of uh, complete satiety. The real trouble about the whirlwind campaign was that they never clearly understood uh, which of them were the whirlwind and who were to be the campaign. Some of them, I believe, took it pretty much to heart. I know that Henry Mullins did. You could see it. The first day he came down to the lunch, all dressed up with the American beauty and a white waistcoat. The second day, he only wore a pink carnation and a gray waistcoat. The third day, he had on a dead daffodil and a cardigan undervest. And on the last day, when the high school teacher should have been there, he only wore his office suit and he shaved. He looked beaten. Is that night that he went up to the rectory to tell the news to Dean Drone. It had been arranged, you know, that the rector should not attend the lunches so as to let the whole thing come as a surprise, so that all he knew about it was just scraps of information about the crowds at the lunch and how they cheered and all that. Once, I believe, he caught sight of the news packet with a two-lunch headline, a quarter of a million, but he wouldn't let himself read further because it would have spoilt the surprise. I saw Mullins, as I say, go up the street on his way to Dean Drones. It was the middle of April, and there was ragged snow on the streets, and the nights were dark still and cold. I saw Mullins grit his teeth as he walked, and I know that he held in his coat pocket his own check for the hundred, with the condition taken off it. And he said that there were so many skunks in Mariposa that a man might as well be in the head office of the city. The Dean came out, to the little gate in the dark. You could see the lamplight behind him from the open door of the rectory, and he shook hands with Mullins, and they went in together. So, I have no idea what happened in that chapter, and I'm the one that read it. Basically, somebody decided that if we get all the businessmen together, uh, important people, we can all agree to donate and raise money for something. Because uh, he saw it in the big city, because they did it for a college. So, the 
didn't work here because the town's too small. You get all the important businessmen together, there's no other businesses to try and get them to donate money. So the whole thing fell through. Why were they raising money? Eh, I think it was for the church. Just because the previous chapter mentioned this. Uh, but I wasn't sure. I guess I missed that part, even though I'm the one that was reading it. So that's weird. Is it my fault? Am I a bad narrator? Or is the author uh, crap? Can't tell. Probably have to go back and read it again, which I'm not going to do. But in either case, I think the one thing I walk away from this is, uh, how come when you're going to give something to GoFundMe, it can't be conditional? Like, yeah, I'll give you $200, but you're only going to get it if you raise the 7000 that you're looking for. Otherwise, I'm not giving you $200. I want that. That'd be really nice. That way I can feel like I'm a charitable person without actually having to give any money. I would just spend my time gambling on, eh, which one's going to be successful? This one looks like it's a dud. They're not going to raise any money. Uh, and then I'll look like I was willing to be a good person, but in the end I got to keep my cash. Kind of like those people that use GoFundMe to try to bankroll their life. Like, oh, if I could just get this amount of money, then I can go on this trip to Hawaii I always wanted to do. And uh, they, they like to imagine that they're influencers and that they're going to get all the people. And usually it falls through. Uh, I've seen that with other people. Like, hey, if you pay for me to go to this convention, uh, you'll get secret access to uh, blog pages nobody else gets to see. <laughs> so... I guess that's uh, what I'm walking away with. I This whole chapter only shows me that I wish I could donate without actually having to donate so that I can technically feel like I'm a good person. And I think we all feel that way. Thanks for listening.